Hey there, welcome to another episode of Teams at Work. My name is Daria Gutnick, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Bunch. I'm co-hosting the show with Anthony Rio, who is also my co-founder and our COO. We are on a mission to help anyone become a great leader. And together with our team, we're building an AI leadership coach to achieve exactly that. This podcast is for a new generation of leaders. Every episode, we talk to an inspiring guest who is running a high-performance team or a company to learn about their journey and what they do in their day-to-day to be an effective leader. So no matter if you're leading a team already or simply interested in becoming more effective at work, you can build your leadership skills by investing as little as two minutes a day with our AI leadership coach. If you're curious, download it for free on the Apple App Store today by simply searching Bunch Leadership Coach. Your journey starts with a quick assessment of what kind of leader you are today, and then you will receive personalized daily leadership tips to help you grow faster into the leader you want to become tomorrow. Our guest in today's episode is Matthias Meyer. He has co-founded not only one, but two companies, one of which some of you who are into developer tools might know. It was Travis CI. He co-founded the company with four other people and scaled it as a CEO to 60 people and then went to join Reaction Commerce as a CTO and is now an executive leadership coach to many CTOs and tech leaders and is publishing his new book. We talked to Matthias about his journey from an impatient engineer to a founder, CTO, and a very patient human that leads by influence. Particularly interesting were Matthias' stakes and perspective on the role of junior engineers in a tech team and why diversity with regards to seniority is really, really important on the dev team. He advocates for involving engineers early in the product development process and talks about the right time to do so and where that makes sense. Matthias also has a very clear definition of a high-performance team, and he finds it really quite enlightening and clarified how a clear definition of what could be possible served him as a guiding light to get his teams to really become high-performant and thriving. Overall, it's a great episode to learn how to build and lead tech teams and how it works in practice. It's really, truly inspiring. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Teams at Work. And I'm here today, as always, with my co-founder, Anthony. Hey, everyone. And we are super excited to have yet another guest with us here today. And as we promised, we want to bring more engineering and tech leaders to all of you to leverage their learnings so that we can all learn together from all the mistakes they've made in their careers, but also all the things that have worked for them. And today we are here with Matthias Meyer, who didn't only have an amazing and inspiring career as a CTO, but also founded two companies. But instead of jumping or instead of actually trying to do the usual spiel where I try to introduce you, why don't you go ahead, Matthias, and introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Matthias. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and to talk to people, we're still in a pandemic, so any conversation with people that don't live in your household is an exciting one. I am a former co-founder of two companies. Myself, I started my career as an engineer, uh, as many of your listeners have, building code, writing code. But I was most prolific, I guess, in debugging production issues. That's been the area where I shone the most, I would say. Like, I never considered myself to be a great software engineer or to write beautiful code or anything like that. But I did enjoy fixing a broken production environment, unless it's it's 3 a.m. in the morning, which unfortunately it is quite a lot, a lot of times. I, as I said, I started out as an engineer, uh, but I also, I valued independence and just doing my own thing for 
a long time. I guess it's part of my upbringing because my parents mostly left me to my own devices in a good way, I want to add. And started uh, several companies in the developer tools market. One was a deployment platform, an automation platform on top of EC2. And the second one is probably more well-known. It's called, it was called Trevis CI. Company still exists, but I no longer work there. I was a part of a team of five co-founders and grew that company from joining as an infrastructure engineer, focusing on automation, monitoring, and making sure that things don't break as often, or if they do, that we, we know about it. And worked my way up from that team of five to being eventually the CEO of a team of 60. And that happened over the course of six, seven years, I guess, and eventually left that company and joined another company as their CTO. Uh, That company was in Santa Monica in California. So there was a gigantic time zone difference. Even during our time, my time at Travis, we had a fairly distributed team. So we were working from European time zones across to occasionally New Zealand time zones and Hawaiian time zones as well. It was quite upsetting overall, as time zones mostly are. I worked as CTO for that company for, for about 18 months. And as all of these companies worked to, uh, and eventually had a successful exit. And yeah, these days I'm working as an, uh, a coach for technical co-founders and CTOs. And I'm also writing a book with you know my former business partner, at the company in Santa Monica with Sarah on our experiences and building, I guess, a different kind of company that is more focused on people providing clarity and that's focused on communication and inclusivity. And the book's going to be called The Intentional Organization. And that's where I am today. It's super, super inspiring and so glad to have you here and and very excited about the conversation. We've been one of, I don't want to say early customers of Travis CI because I think you weren't early, but for us, you were one of the first tools we use. So for us, Travis CI actually means a lot. And I remember one specific touch point where we got, I think, merge from Travis after being customers for a few months. And the merge was very diverse and very inclusive and had like all sorts of different, yeah, mascot designs. And it was, I think, 2017 or so. So it wasn't like as common as it is today. And it was really great to see how progressive our dev tool partners were. So Travis CI definitely means a lot to me, I think. But also super impressive to see that not only did you found so many companies that you sold all of them. And I think now heading into the executive coach, um, presence as well, I think is much, much needed because as we also see with our community, I think engineering management is one of the toughest parts of management in tech companies, we believe. And it's really, yeah, really interesting and and very good to see that we have more support there. All right, Matthias, let's kick off with, I think the most burning question of the episode. I was doing a bit of research, checked out your LinkedIn profile, came across something that stopped me in my tracks that I think our listeners must also be asking themselves. Why are bacon and coffee two of your most endorsed LinkedIn skills? It's a very good question. And I'm also not sure if I'm doing LinkedIn right with having these as my key endorsements. I'm I'm a big coffee nerd and have been for, I don't know how long, I guess 2008, 2009 is when that really started before this really took off in Berlin. This is not to say that I'm a coffee hipster or anything. It's just, you know, it's it's just been like that for a while. At Travis, we started out as a business. We would actually send coffee from a Berlin roastery 
to our early customers. We only did this for a couple of months because after a while it didn't really, well, it's a lot of work to do that. We would put a wax seal on the coffee bag, uh, write a handwritten thank you note to go along with it and just chip it off to a customer. Not all of these arrived because billing addresses can be tricky, but anywho, I still work today with this coffee producer here in Berlin on different things, more on the business side of things, but it's been a fun thing to do. and. I have all kinds of coffee gear at home. I was always the one to bring coffee gear to the office. Actually, to one of our customers were also friends of mine worked. I think when I visited their office the first time, I noticed that they only had a weird coffee maker. And the next time I came by, I gave them a Chemex. So, which, you know, the Chemex was invented by a German. It's just very fitting altogether. And so that's the coffee side of things. I'm just a very, I don't drink a lot of coffee these days, at least not uh, anymore. But it's still good coffee is important to me. And bacon, I guess the fun story behind bacon is that I used to be a vegetarian for 14 years until I think beginning of 2013, when I think bacon was one of the things I was most keen to try and grew very fond of very quickly. Super interesting. We share that part. I've been also a vegetarian for actually 12 years and then I kind of went back on it again. Do you feel guilty about it sometimes? I do a lot of meal planning because I've been taking care of the household for the last year since basically the pandemic started and cooked two meals. And I, you know, while I like cooking with meat, I do focus on, especially after feedback from my wife, uh, on lighter cooking and just, you know, mostly leaving meat as a once or twice a week occasion. I think that works out okay. Super cool. As a follow-up, and thank you for this very important question, Anthony. I was curious about this too. Um, also because our co-founder and CTO, Charles, shares these passions, like literally one-to-one. -one. I think you would have said like, Tell me a CTO who likes bacon or let's say meat, spicy sauce and coffee will literally would have said Charles, obviously. And then we're like, oh, no, Matthias as well. <laughs> yeah, I do make hot sauce. You know, I, I, I have a whole shelf with fermentation stuff on it. And I just I do make my own hot sauce. And fun fact, like one time with one of my co-founders, we uh, we put bacon in the oven and poured espresso on it. So just to take something back to your CTO as inspiration. He absolutely will try this tomorrow. <laughs> and this will be the reason why he will be the first one to check out the podcast. <laughs> so Charles, there is a like, cool recipe you need to try. But coming back to kind of your very interesting journey and maybe also challenging moments, such as when you have too much spicy sauce or the question in this case, what were like looking back at your career and, and the past years and all the different things you've done and the different situations you've been to, what would you say were the most challenging moments? There were so many. Uh, <laughs> I do have three, uh, so I, I will not, you know, expand on this too much, but there's an endless list uh, of things. I think that the, the, the biggest one, especially in the transition from, you know, being an engineer to then managing a small team and suddenly being responsible for like an entire organization, you know, things that as an engineer or most founders, you have no idea, you know, how to, how to approach, how to do yourself, how to structure and all of that, like building out a new department, you know, you have to usually either hire someone to do that, which means you have to have an idea of, well, what you're actually looking for. Uh, and then, you know, or you have to do the stuff yourself at first. 
uh, and then hire someone. For me, it's like the biggest thing I've had to, the hardest thing I had to overcome was like my, my own inexperience, like in management and leadership. You know, when I started out, I haven't had like a good management experience before then. And so I didn't have anything to, to project back, to look back on and say, well, I could take these bits. I mostly knew what not to do, but then figuring out what to do with that in practice turns out to be very hard. And I think an, ex the, an extension of that is the shame that comes with making mistakes, especially in an organizational setting. Like when you still have a small team, it's not as painful, you can recover quickly, but when you're you know, suddenly responsible for a large group of people and everyone can see your mistakes. Yeah, I remember a lot of shame in that, which also led to indecision, not wanting to make decisions because I'm afraid of what the, you know, of the impact. I think that's the second one. And the third one is like, it's just the weight of actually making those decisions. Decisions that now impact just a growing group of people this can be, can be daunting. I want to say scary, maybe, maybe scary is the right word because that's how it felt like in the early days. I would say these days I'm a lot more confident in these things because I've built my own frameworks and I think about these things differently, but it's still, there's still a lot of weight to all of this because there's so much uncertainty as you move up into like true senior management where you're responsible for 20 or more people. I couldn't describe, I think, the many of the feelings that I have as, as a CEO of a startup better. I definitely can relate to many of those. And I think with every decision that is complex, where you know many things can go wrong, you want to do right by your team and the users and the stakeholders and everyone involved. Today, I actually had an interesting experience where one of our developers that is really brilliant and very sharp and kind of keeps us on our toes, basically asked us the question, but what are we trying to do? Are we playing to win or are we trying to prevent losing? Because depending on this, <laughs> we'll choose different strategies. And there was sitting like, This is a very good pointer. And it's so hard to actually, of course, we all play to win, but not give in to that anxiety when you know, or that fear when you know, but if I do make a mistake, like all of you will be impacted. Don't you see? <laughs> I definitely can relate so much to this. And I thank you for being so open and transparent also about the emotional side of things. I think we talk about this a little. I think the, the, what, what your developer brought up is a great question. And I think it, it highlights the value of having junior engineers on your team because they tend to be curious, you know, and really try to understand things. And it's a downside of mostly having a team that is more homogenous on the senior engineering side. So excellent. Kudos to that engineer for asking that question. I agree. And now that you're saying this also, I also remember he is literally the only junior on the team. There's three very experienced people in around him, including the CTO. And I think it speaks for, for the courage and I'm also very glad to have him on the team. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think I was, uh, I was listening to the list there, Matthias. And the first thought that came to my mind based on our conversation pre pre-recording was where do time zones sit on your list of challenges? But I think my question is, I was surprised to hear collaboration. Typically it's a very high challenge for a lot of teams and may maybe it's more these days too, but it's, it's a, it's a very tough challenge. And so I'm very interested in sort of like the best examples of collaboration from your career. Do you remember a project or a team that just was stellar, a collaboration that was just memorable? And then, of course, the opposite. Maybe you could shed some light on some collaborations that just, you know, went south and, and why they went south. And you could, you know, mention functions, also artifacts, tools, roles, responsibilities, anything that sort of contributed to either one going to the moon and vice versa, obviously. Yeah, I think the, my answer to that is quite simple. Uh, just about the time zone issue. 
I think the, the previous question was, what is, you know, what was a hard thing that you had overcome and you cannot overcome time zones? So I left them out, you know, time zones are there. There's no way for you to change that unless you decide your entire company works on UTC, which is not healthy. It's not recommended. So this is why they're not included. But yes, time zone are probably the hardest thing that you can actually work with. About the question about, you know, what has been a great example of collaboration? I think the greatest examples that I look back on were groups where everyone gets involved from the start. And when I say everyone, I mean, you know, so if we use the word stakeholders, basically, and stakeholders can be anyone from marketing to customer support to legal, uh, whoever really needs to, you know, has some some stake in the outcome of whatever this team is building. And, you know, engineering supports a lot of functions, so it's not, you know, unusual for them to having to account for legal issues, compliance issues, and well, basically anything else. And it's useful to have the voice of the customer in there because it saves a lot of trouble at the end, I find, when, you know, say, let's use quality assurance as one example. It's usually, you know, in a normal development cycle, it's, it's a thing that traditionally happens after development. You know, there's, there's a set of stages, you know, you have you know, product comes up with an idea, then it's designed, then maybe there's user testing, then the engineering team starts working on it, then there's, you know, quality assurance, and at some point, you know, marketing gets involved, and so on and so forth. And maybe in between, someone from the legal side says, hold on, we can't ship this, we need to go back. And so in that scenario, you quickly have, maybe you have an agile development team, but everything around it is really, if you look at it from a distance, it's still a waterfall process. You know, you still trickle down from one stage to the next. And if one stage figures out something is wrong, you have to go back. Sometimes not just one stage, but several stages. And so what I found is like the best collaboration for me happens when all of those functions sit at the table when the team starts working on it and is kept in the loop constantly. Doesn't mean that they are going to be in every stand-up meeting, in every team meeting, or in every little thing that happens. It's just that they know what's happening, that they know what's being built on. They can provide early feedback. They can provide early warning signs. You know, say the legal side is, you know, if you're, if compliance is what you have to worry about, whether it's SOX or HIPAA or other fun things like PCI, it can always be useful to know that up front rather than figure out down the line. It's like, oh, oh, we forgot about this. Now we need to go back. That's unfortunate. And so this that's my favorite kind of collaboration. And when you say that all the stakeholders are in kind of on at the same table from the beginning of things, do you mean actually in the discovery and exploration? So actually in the product phase? As early on as possible. I mean, it's, I think the the structure I'm thinking of is like ideally engineering is involved in the product phase as well. It's maybe a little bit of a matter of definition of what is a product stage. And what is then an engineering stage and so on? I think I would say at the earliest point that is feasible and reasonable, you know, maybe they don't need to be involved when you're starting, you know, sketches of, of UIs and all of that. But when there is, you know, before there's a, a kickoff, before a team actually starts implementing and building this, then is when I would have get everyone involved. It's like, this is what we're looking to build. What do we need to take into account from your perspective? What can't, what should we not forget from yours? What do we need to take into account so that our customers are going to have a nice experience of starting to use this? And I think that the benefit of all this is like, say, customer support, they're involved early on and in the process. You don't actually need to brief them later or, you know, like do workshops or anything to teach them how this new feature works. They already know. 
And there are no tools or rules or, you know, roles involved here. It's more, you know, it's quite simple. It's like get everyone involved as early and as possible who has, you know, who has a potential interest or say in what's being built. And that's it. I have two follow-up questions on this because also you worked particularly and and founded particularly and built businesses that are actually very kind of developer intensive or where you're actually kind of developers were developing for developers. So like the customer is very similar to those people that build. And I can't imagine this is a very empowering environment for engineers as well to be in. On whose plate was that responsibility to kind of like tie things together, bring people together around the same table, determine that time point when it's reasonable and meaningful? Was this more on the product? side was it on the engineering side or both what did you observe there yeah that's that's a good one of course i need to you know prefix this by saying that you know how i think about this now is an evolution like early collaborations that i've tried to model quote unquote were you know not always working like this so i do have enough examples that i'm responsible for myself uh, where this collaboration has worked out Or, you know, it's also from talking to startups, talking to other engineering leaders and, you know, telling me that they're frustrated with the process as it works now. And it is mostly what I've described as, you know, a waterfall model. So who's responsible for who's been responsible for this? That's a good question. I'm not even sure I specifically remember this. I think this was just part of the process that we did in state around this was that a project has a lead and that lead is basically responsible for getting everything together and getting everyone together for this kickoff meeting like a project lead basically was responsible only for like you know in in one example we worked in six week cycles or for longer features maybe even longer and there was uh, there was always a lead for this kind of project in the team doesn't doesn't mean this was the tech lead wouldn't need to be the product lead or anybody else. It, it's uh, you could do, could make that a rotating role, which I do like to do things as rotating roles. And what was the reason that this every project needed a project lead? Was it just because there was a you know a POC for everyone? Was it an, an alignment thing? To me, it's more that you know there's there's one person who's responsible for a certain set of things. You know, like uh, sending regular project updates. You know, making sure that project meetings happen. Making sure that you know there are work packages before the team starts working that it's clear what they're trying to build and why doesn't mean that this person has to do all of those things but ultimately you know this responsible is bestowed upon them and i like that you know doing this in a rotating role but it's just useful to have at least one person can also be two people but you know if you attribute this to a team you can also do that and set the clear expectation to the team it's like hey you need to do, I need you to do these things, split them up however you want, but there's probably some scenario where, you know, one individual is responsible for a certain aspect of things. I think to me, it's more about setting the expectation than making it an explicit role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what I was trying to get at. Ex- absolutely. I think even, even if you gave a bunch of work packages to an entire team, someone... I think in high performance teams, someone in effect takes a little bit of a quasi leadership position, right? Which leads me to sort of my my question. Um, I, I think you know, taking an engineering view, and I, I know you've spoken about this in the past as well. Um, seeing teams as systems that you can influence is it's really attractive to us because our internal definition of leadership is also just um, it's not about having a specific leadership position or a title or anything like that, but it is positively influencing yourself and the people around you, right? So these project managers or anybody else on the team 
there are leaders that don't eat, that probably aren't even in that formal project management position. But that sounds like one of the levers that you've used in the past to sort of create high performance teams. My question then would be, what are the other levers? What are the other sort of tactics out there or um, tips to use a very famous bunch word? Uh, what are the other tips that you use to create a high performance team beyond even tech, just sort of in general? Well, first off, I would start by defining what high performance means, because it's a word that's, you know, that people like to throw around. And but the reality is everyone has a different definition. I think the same is true for, you know, industry phrases like A players or whatnot. It's like every, every organization has a different A player type, you know, and it's okay to have that as long as you're clear on what that is. And so maybe hypothetically, let's say like a high performing team is one that's working with focus that's shipping value to the customer regularly, bugs are addressed quickly, team is communicating clearly, and information is shared timely and freely as well. Issues are addressed quickly, and there are clear opportunities for people to contribute, whether that's in meetings or in code or you know other leadership-esque opportunities that you might have. So you know, I'm not saying this is exactly my definition of a high-performance team, but it is. I would start by defining that. You know, if I don't have a clear picture in my head of what a high performance team is, I also I can't get my team, I can't get get it there because I just I don't know. I don't know what it looks like. I don't have a vision or a picture of that in my head. And so I think this is also which you know is a nice segue for myself into how how you can influence teams. For me, it is all about uh, providing them with an image of what is possible. You know, say, if, if we go a certain direction, say, you know, not saying we're going this direction, but rather say, if we were to go this way, this is all the fun stuff we could do. Say our release process happens every three months. You know, imagine what we could do if our release process would happen every two weeks, every week, every day, whenever we want. You know, we could actually adjust our development process. We could actually respond a lot faster to customer demands. You know, the process would likely be a lot less painful as well because, you know, we'll, we're likely going to automate it. Uh, this was also part of my career was mostly automating builds, deployments, and all of that, uh, which is, I guess, how, you know, something like Travis CI eventually came to be. Serendipity, one can say. And I, I find that this, you know, providing people with this vision, this, this picture of what could be possible a lot more powerful. It's a lot slower as a process, which is why it's not, you know, especially to as engineers who like quick feedback, you know, it can be quite frustrating. You know, that example that I was just mentioning, that was actually an example of something that I did as a CTO. And it took, it took quite a while until we got there, but it was still completely worth it. It was still, you know, in the end, I sat there, I didn't even, you know, had the feeling that this was my idea and this is, it's, you know, this is great. I can claim credit for this or something like that. It was more, it was just so amazing to see this come, come to life, you know, because of this picture, this picture of what we could do. And then the, for the team to see it before themselves of what is now actually possible. And I think that's one aspect. So I, I like to call this leadership by influence. Again, it's, it's a very, it's a slow process, but to me, well, I've moved from being an impatient engineer to a rather patient person. So I find this process to be a lot more fulfilling. And it's, it, it helps with buy-in from people because you're not telling them what to do. You're actually inviting them to contribute to how you could get to this beautiful future that is on the horizon. So if I'm hearing you 
correctly, just to kind of making a mental note for myself, but our, our, also our listeners, of course, what if is the key. So asking what if questions. And I think as, as makers and as, as leaders and as people that kind of see things in the world and then think ahead and try to like understand how we can make things better. I think many people out there, I, I actually would even claim as much as like everyone out there probably has thoughts where we think, oh, this could be cool if we could like do this or we could achieve that. And I think where lots of innovation and good ideas stop and stall is exactly not knowing how to actually bring these ideas into a world so that they can land with other people, so other people can buy into them and help to make them happen instead of actually fighting and competing against each other. And I think it's a beautiful, actual, very actionable tip almost that I'm taking away here, which is ask what if, and then present that idea and that um, opportunity in the future to see whether there is any, anyone who wants to jump on board and kind of like think along with you. Yeah, that's an excellent summary. It's a much better tip than everything I just said, very short and succinct. So <laughs> that's literally our job advice. <laughs> we pick up the wisdom of real, real world leaders and <laughs> summarize it in bits. So I'm glad I succeeded um, in this case, but I think it's really good advice. Thank you so much for, for sharing this. I actually have a follow-up question on this as well, which is, Partly personally inspired being a product lead in a team that is now actually engineering heavy. I think we've been, it, it really dependent um, whether how big our engineering team was, but I think we're in a stage again where we actually have a quite uh, percentage-wise quite big engineering team in our um, company. And I think one of the burning topics in our team currently is focus versus collaboration. Obviously, engineering work requires lots of focus. It's deep focus work. It's really, uh, and, and I really mean it. I appreciate it always because I, I understand how difficult it must be to like think yourself into a problem. Lots of complexity, lots of moving pieces, lots of logic. In early stage startups, things change all the time. So I come from a place where I really emphasize with um, the struggle and the battle for more focus. At the same time, as you just said, it's also very important that you stay in touch with people. And when there is multiple bets being de-risked, multiple ideas being explored, things move fast, it's, it becomes this innate struggle between, do I join this meeting now? It seems kind of important. Of course, they will need my input. But at the same time, I actually need to get this like thing done that I committed myself yesterday to. And like these are my only two hours where I actually can do this. So any tips and advice from your longstanding experience as an engineering leader, but also as an engineer formerly, how to navigate this would be appreciated. I think the question of should I be in this meeting is actually a good one. I think way too, way too few people actually ask themselves this question. And, you know, sometimes the answer is yes, but also sometimes the answer can just be no. Like, I don't need to be in this meeting. I have, you know, we have processes in place that will make sure that whatever was discussed and whatever follow-up items come out of it will be communicated after the meeting. So, you know, I don't have anything to add, which is, you know, not, which has been the case for you in this prior meeting. But, you know, it could be that. People like to invite a lot of other people to meetings. They like to invite the boss to meetings because, you know, they, they do have things to say and they would like someone to listen. But I think, you know, I would start with, to answer this question, is like give yourself permission to say no. And by extension, give your team permission to say no. This isn't to say to say no, you know, that they can say no all the time because, well, that would be, well, it wouldn't be in a collaborative spirit. To me, this is a lot about setting boundaries and setting boundaries for, you know, whatever concerns you might have. I'll, I can go through these in a minute. Or setting boundaries for your team, setting boundaries for how your team communicates, what the expectations are, and also set boundaries for yourself. You know, how you communicate when you approach your team. And just, you know, for 
concerns that are maybe affect, you know, other people around, say, an engineering team. I like, again, rotating roles, you know, like one thing that we've done at Travis early on was to rotate engineers through customer support. You know, every every couple of weeks, an engineer would spend a week doing customer support. They could fix bugs that come up or they just talk to customers for that week. It has many benefits for me. Like, uh, and we did this because as founders, as engineering founders, we, well, we spent all of, like what felt like month of speaking to customers. Like if I put all of this, you know, in, just in, in a time frame, a lot of times for talking to customers and we found incredible value in it. It was like one of the spirits that we wanted to keep, you know, as a cultural aspect. And so, even to do that, we would, you know, when, when a new engineer was onboarded, two weeks of their first four weeks in the company, they would spend in customer support, which had the benefit of they already knew the voice of the company. They got an idea of what, what some of the issues are. They had a fresh view on things. And we wouldn't, you know, later when they would move into the, the full customer support rotation, we wouldn't have to educate them on the tooling. They already knew everything. So that was, I find that quite valuable. I think uh, liaising people from one team into another team or, or another department to me is like one of the most useful things uh, you can do to learn more about what is important to that team and how can we contribute to that. Getting back to, you know, collaboration and setting boundaries, I think the, this, uh, the same is true for creating opportunities for serendipity. Like, especially now that, you know, most of us are still sitting in front of screens at home all the time. There's no, you know, we don't run into each other at the coffee shop around the corner or at the water cooler, at the coffee maker, which hopefully is a Chemex or something, something like that. I find it quite useful to create dedicated slots for this, even though this might sound weird because then it's not serendipitous anymore. Uh, but, you know, you I think in a in a distributed environment, especially, and in one where so much happens through chat, GitHub issues, or whatever other tooling that you use that pops up push notifications on your phone, there are just so many there's so many distractions, and it just I find it incredibly useful to to leave to to allocate dedicated time for this. Say you know half an hour every week for these the you know these so-called donut meetings where you know, one person on the team is paired up with another person from you know, maybe completely different person. Yeah, random coffees or weekly pairing sessions. You know, one of uh, when I was CTO, this was a practice the team was already doing before I joined. They had a dedicated slot every week where someone could pair up with anybody they wanted to pair up on. Maybe they had a very specific problem that they were trying to solve or they wanted to learn something about specific aspects of the code base. And so they could just, you know, ask anyone else to well either work with them teach them something you know or just stuff like that and i think setting these boundaries is also important for focus time you know like even even i as ceo responsible for a growing team i had you know always i had focus time in my calendar like meetings that were popping in for that time which didn't happen a lot because we were so distributed but if anyone would call for a meeting unless it is truly important I wouldn't say yes to that meeting and reschedule it to a later time. But that's mostly coming from me knowing that the morning hours are my most productive time. 
I have to say, I'm trying this right now, um, similar, like blocking morning hours to, to focus. It's really admirable to see that you were able to stick to it and actually push back on meetings that came in and meeting requests. How do you deal with this feeling around like, but I'm going to block a team member. They will have to, you know, wait for half a day and find their own way around it. How do you deal with these type of emotions that I think prevent a lot of people to actually stick to focus time? My take on that is that most issues or most questions that pop up are not urgent. It can be, you know, a hard take to digest because, you know, to, as to, to a manager, especially maybe to a fairly new one, everything can seem important. Whenever there's a question coming in, you want to be there to answer that question. Whenever there's a problem that your team has, you want to be there to answer that question. Truth is that question and problem is still going to be there two hours later. And my take is always, unless production is broken, it's probably not urgent. I think there's a, I've been working in, a, in distributed teams for, for more than 10 years now. And I think what, what you come to accept when you're in an environment like that is that if you have an issue or a question and that person isn't around, you will just pick up something else. You're, you will, you know, there's, there's a, nice, uh, a nice way that uh, the CEO of Todoist has put this. He, he, he called this, you know, in asynchronous teams, you're blocked by default. And I find that quite comforting and also freeing, you know, because if I'm blocked on something, if I have a question or a problem that I, you know, the person that I have no other way of finding a solution to, I will just focus on something else, you know, like there's, there's, there's all this about context switching that is involved here as well. So it's not always an easy answer, but thinking about it like that to me was quite deliberating. And again, this is not to say that I don't want to be there for my team, you know, or not ask them questions. But for me, my reality was that as a CTO, I was here in Germany and most of my team was in an orbit around California which, you know, in effect means that most of my team spends their day without me and vice versa. So, you know, I need to teach that team how to address their own problems. You know, not just always rely on me to make the big decisions for them, but actually coach them and provide them with tools and frameworks and all of that to make those decisions on their own. And of course, also be comfortable with this myself, like that, you know, there's stuff that's going to happen when I'm not around. All I can do is, you know, set the right context for this, and then I will accept whatever outcome comes from that. Unless it's really, if I vehemently disagree with this outcome, which hasn't happened a lot. Super helpful. Thank you so much. I think this is very deliberating, like blocked by default and remote teams is so true. I really, really like that phrase, actually. Hopefully us, but also our audience and catalyzes them to think about other ways they can not try and unblock themselves by default, but like deal with the block by default and build around that default sort of structure that that distribution gives you but i think you said a lot about a lot of things that you've learned along not only your engineering journey but your working in distributed teams journey and you also said a couple minutes ago you know back when you were a quote unquote impatient engineer and there's a lot of things you understand now i think i'd love to zoom into that once more i got two questions for you from our audience actually including our cto what were some of those things that Back when you were a, to use your words, impatient engineer, back when you were a younger engineer, what were some of those things that just made no sense to you, but now are just ultra clear being a CTO, but I would also even just add like, you know, Bunch's definition of leadership in there, being a leader, someone who is actively trying to really positively impact those around you and you're in a position to do so. 
What are some of those things that just made no sense back then, but just are like ultra clear now that you would love to impart on the younger you? I think that the key thing that stood out to me with this, you know, thinking about this is understanding that everything in a business is a bet, you know, an experiment that may or may not pan out as you intended it to be. Things in a business are never binary. And for, you know, for us engineers, most things are binary. Most things are simple if-else statements, you know, where one of the options holds true, or if not, you have some other exit points. And most things in a business, uh, in a company, and I would say in a senior leadership position, where so many things are uncertain and not and opaque and not really visible to you, most of those things fall on a large spectrum of options where, you know, they carry different benefits, they carry different risks. And that can be pretty daunting to ponder because now you not only have two options, you have a gazillion options and you need to pick one of them. You know, which one is the least awful? Which one is the most effective? You know, as your junior engineer kind of asks, it's kind of, it's kind of like that. You know, what are we trying to achieve? Are we going this way or going that way? Or are we going a completely different way than that? And personally, I find this thinking about this and understanding this very, very comforting. You know, and I think in my early time as CEO, as I was starting out, and maybe even as I had a few years under my belt, it, even then I didn't understand this. And most decisions, you know, as I mentioned before, seemed really, really daunting. But, you know, now I just find it frees you, it frees me up to make decisions, to make good decisions, you know, a good decision being one that is, you know, made for the right reasons within, you know, a reasonable amount of time and with a shared goal in mind. Let's use that as a definition. And, you know, it frees thinking this way about everything as a bet just allows me to really focus on what we're trying to gain and what we're ready to lose. Now, some people don't like to lose, but there's, you know, this is part of a bet. There's always, you know, a bet may pan out or you may lose something. And you can weigh these things off. You can say, well, we're hoping to increase our revenue by such and such amount, or we're hoping to acquire, say, 500,000, you know, new engineering managers with this new feature. So what's the worst that could happen if we don't? Maybe we've learned something and that's good enough for us. You know, maybe we will iterate on this feature and hopefully get to that 500,000 number or whatever other else the number is in a different way. But, you know, and, or you can say, well, if we're, you know, if we're losing this deal with this big customer, we stand to lose a $500,000 contract or euros where in Germany after all. Um, so I've, it just, you know, thinking about things and risks and what you're willing to gain or what you're hoping to gain and what you're willing to lose. It's just, to me, it's been quite helpful, but it's also been quite some work for me to coach the people who report to me to think this way. You know, like it's, as you come from engineering, as you, you know, as an engineer, you just, you know, things are more binary than what you might be comfortable with. It's like, well, it's an interesting litmus test, you know, if you move into senior management, like how comfortable are you not seeing what you're, what you're creating or what you're changing right away, but maybe three months down the line, how comfortable are you betting, say a hundred thousand euros to build something where you don't know exactly if it's going to work or not. And yeah, many people are uncomfortable with this for other reasons too. Maybe, you know, it also implies, see, maybe it's, maybe it implies that we don't really know what to do, that we have, you know, no idea, that we don't know everything we should, which if you really think about it, is mostly true. 
like unless you know we've gained a ton of experience throughout the years unless we've worked in every single startup there is we don't really understand everything and i find again i find it comforting and freeing to to just admit that you know and say i don't know everything but here's what i know and based on that we're going to do that that response reminds me of this this concept of thinking in probabilities right thinking in risks and and thinking in bets and and uh you're almost in the business of risk mitigation versus trying to find the right or wrong answer and i think what startups are about in a lot of ways but it is extremely 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 difficult i think in my world when i first started to intuitively grasp that i didn't even know the word thinking in probabilities but i started to describe these very difficult decisions as 4951 where actually the worst thing you could do is not make a decision because there's only a a percentage in probability difference between one way or the other, the ones were, they're just really hairpin, hairpin sort of decisions. And then I started to, with Daria and Charles's help as well, start to think, start to grasp this concept of thinking in probabilities. But you said it at the very beginning. You said, you said exactly that. You said it's been really hard also to, to feel the weight of some of those decisions where there really is no right or wrong door, but it's just, it's kind of everyone's leadership maturity journey where you start to just come to terms and almost feel joy in some, I mean, I hesitate to use the word joy because I don't know if it's always joyful, but the weight of some of those decisions and being like, okay, in the uncertainty, right? It reminds me of this thought of like how leadership or management is entirely misunderstood by us as society. I think like on the one hand, we tend to glamorize it almost specifically with like the new glamour of being a founder and all of this, where we expect people almost to be like superheroes. I think that's still largely true, even though we've done much better on vulnerability, but now the vulnerability is the new hero. So like if you're a vulnerable leader, you're the hero, but in some way you're always the hero. So you're always judged based on whether you're successful in your judgment and in your actions. But on the other hand, we actually don't spend so much time looking like on the other, on the dark side of the moon, which is the guilt, the shame, the anxiety that comes with that type of thing. And I actually, I think working on this topic of leadership and helping kind of like redefine it with our community, I think realized something that blew my mind a little bit where I was actually drawing similarities or parallels to it's a service job. Uh, my parents have a restaurant and I've been waitering there since I, I don't know, since I'm a little kid. And it's a very similar job. It's a very different way of servicing. So like the service doesn't always feel great in the moment. <laughs> because its success is judged by how much the decision makes sense in like six months down the line, sometimes 10 months down the line. But it is a service job where you as a perceiver need to process information the best way possible to then make the best bet possible on the outcome and hope that you are not wrong too many times. But at the same time, also often are judged actually by the quality of your decision-making process and not only on the outcome. So it's actually quite very, very complex service job. <laughs> it's really not about you as a hero. It's really about the people you serve. And the service itself is actually quite complex. That is true. I think there's a there's a flip side to this where you know when people if you know if if people only see binary choices in a decision you know they they tend to get invested in one or the other and sometimes really really deeply invested and I've certainly experienced that and I, you know one one part of me appreciated that but then you know when you're deep into like deeply focused on a single path forward it's impossible to see that there's like a multitude of other options and sometimes I also had to remind people, we're just building software. We're not operating at an open heart. So true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As, <laughs> as, as hard as things seem and as difficult as the decisions are, we're not saving people's lives. At least most of us are not. Of course, there's software that does that too. 
Yeah. But I mean, like, I, this is something I also came to appreciate from, like, when you're an engineer, you know, perfectionism is something that, you know, was important to me, writing beautiful code and all of that. And so understanding that it's just software was not something I was ready to admit. It's like there was, there was, you know, a, pers- a part of me in this code. Like, I crafted this, I shaped this. But then 12 months later, as in your case, this code is probably not going to be there. So who, who the, you know, who the heck cares? Again, I find it very freeing to just think like that. You know, it's, we're just building software. It's fine. Whichever decision we're going to make, nobody's going to get hurt. Maybe some feelings, but we can work through that. Matthias, was there anything else you had to unlearn? One thing I had to unlearn is thinking that, you know, technology and code or what I do every day is the most important thing. And in turn, moving to understanding what, you know, what other people, what different people in the business optimize for and try to understand that rather than fighting those things. You know, there are traditional contentious, you know, touch points between, you know, engineering or in a traditional setting between engineering and several other departments. Like when you have a dysfunctional organization, there's going to be a multitude of those. And I I find that looking for these things, trying to understand them actually it can help make you a better manager because engineering and technology really support a lot of aspects in the business. Maybe all of them. I don't want to, you know, stretch it to that because it could also communicate an overimportant, but it does support a lot of functions in a business. And it's helpful to understand how you can best support the folks and the functions around you. I would say that's probably as you move up in senior management, that gets more and more important. That you're not living your little island and do your own little thing, but you need to actually work with your peers, with the people around you to make sure that you can help them achieve whatever their goals are. And I think that's the parallel between leadership and management and engineering, ultimately, even though they seem so different, black and white on the one hand, lots of like probabilistic uh, thinking on the other hand, lots of people, staff and management, lots of code staff and engineering, especially in the beginning stages. But they both have in common that it's actually a support function in many ways. The other thing I had to unlearn, I already mentioned, is like being unlearning my own impatience, you know, that everything needs to be fixed right away or that, you know, that there's a short feedback cycle on things. I think uh, I'd mentioned this before. One of the things you need to be more comfortable with as you move up in management is that things just take a lot longer. It takes a lot longer for you to get feedback or data on you know, instating a new process or for changing a process or for changing a team structure. It's going to take months. It's a really vulnerable lesson. And I think it definitely holds for many, many, many people out there. I think not only engineers, as a founder, I can relate so much to being patient. Everything needs to be done today. And it really is difficult when you have a group of people that you pull along with you, all have their own priorities and goals. So Good advice. I like to think of this now as a difference between like being impatient and like creating urgency. Like I found this distinction quite differently because with our impatience, what we usually want to achieve is, you know, we have some urgency to get something done. But really, if you separate the two, which is what my coach has helped me, like if you separate the two, you can find other ways how you can instill urgency in people. You know, and urgency doesn't mean, you know, work 14 hours every day. Urgency more means, you know, let's get this, like, let's get moving on this. Like we, you know, want to do stuff. Super cool. It's been a 
really great conversation. Thank you so much, Matthias. It's been really, really insightful on a personal level, and I hope for our listeners as well. I like to ask this out of the blue kind of question, even though I ask this to most of our guests, but any other kind of books or blogs or podcasts that you've been listening to, reading lately that you could recommend digging into that inspire you and that you would recommend to discover? Thinking in Systems is probably one of the most influential books I've read. Forces you to think of, you know, how do you influence what is happening here? How do you influence behaviors do you don't want to see how do you how can you influence you know a vicious cycle in a dysfunctional team it's not going to tell you exactly how to do those things but it's going to foster a thinking of you know there's a thing that keeps on spinning and you need to find the points where you can change the direction it's spinning or stop it from spinning at all which seems impossible but you know the, that that kind of thing was incredibly one incredibly useful. And another book that influenced me deeply, I guess, even, you know, as I started a business was is Drive by Dan Pink. Uh, I think it made a key differentiation between what, you know, intrinsic and extrinsic motivation and what it is that really motivates people when they come to work. Are there bonus or other incentive structures that motivate people that they're optimizing for? A third book, I mean, even as I was progressing in my management career as CEO, I think Camille Fournier's uh, The Manager's Path is still one I would hand out to everybody that I come across who is asking me for a book on engineering management. I think I personally got a lot out of Andy Grove's High Output Management, but it's also, well, it does make you think a lot, which is probably a good thing. It's a very, it's a very succinct and short book. And there are weird examples in there about, you know, how uh, how to build an efficient egg cooking facility in a restaurant where you think this is no application to software engineering. But if you go back to our example about what software engineering and all the functions around it usually look like in a waterfall approach, it's very useful to look at the the egg produce the egg cooking example and think about, you know, does your organization work like that or does it not? And I think my my favorite podcast is not engineering management related, but is cooking related. So it's called Spilled Milk. It's by uh, my friend Molly and her co-host Matthew, and it's quite hilarious. They t- they cover a different topic on cooking and food every week, and they have done that for ten years, which is amazing. I love listening to that show. Thank you so much for a great show, Matthias. It's been a really good ride. Well, it has been. Thank you for having me. Of course. Awesome conversation. And thanks for all the insights, Matthias. Really, really appreciate it. Happy to. Thanks for listening to Teams at Work. Let us know what your thoughts are on today's episode. You can find us on Twitter at Daria Gutnick and at Anthony A. Rio. Or simply follow Bunch at Bunch underscore HQ. And don't forget, subscribe if you like the episode, because we always have interesting guests who join us and share valuable knowledge as well as actionable advice. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing from you. Please do get in touch. At the beginning of the show, we did mention that we're building an AI leadership coach that helps you level up as a leader in just two minutes a day. Check us out on the Apple App Store and simply search Bunch Leadership Coach to find it. Try it out and let us know what you think. And that's a wrap. We are your hosts, Daria Gutnick and Anthony Rio, and we're excited to speak with you all soon. Till next time.